this weekend together. Thank you. But enough about them. Back to me. <laughs> now, I know we're going to do a sobriety countdown later, but just it helps me just so for my own understanding. Do we have anybody in the room that's in their first 30 or 60 or 90 days of sobriety? Anybody new in their first 30, 60 or 90? Raise your hand. That's fantastic. You're very welcome. And I know I speak on behalf of everyone that's here. If you're in your first 30, 60 or 90 days, I really want you to understand that we are delighted that you are here. Uh, we also know that if you're in your first 30, 60, or 90 days of sobriety, you may not be delighted. <laughs> and we understand that. We also understand that it's difficult to be new in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because we don't mean to insult you, we don't mean to offend you, but we say things to you because it's been a while since we were new, and sometimes we forget what it's like to be new and how sensitive and uncomfortable we can be. And we're so welcoming and smiling and, hi, how are you? And you want to kill us, I know. And, uh, <laughs> and, we, and we say things like, oh, I know right where you've been. And it's offensive. When I was new in AA and people would shake my hand, they go, I know right where you've been, kid. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> But I'm here to tell you, if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, believe it or not, we know a great deal about you. Now, you might think, well, how can that be? How could you know anything about me? You haven't even met me. Well, we do know a lot about you. For instance, we know uh, last year wasn't a good year. <laughs> Nobody gets to Alcoholics Anonymous on a winning streak. Nobody. Nobody has a wonderful life. Everything's great. The kids love you. The wife loves you. The job's great. Your neighbors love you. You say, you know what? My life's perfect. Maybe I'll do something about all that wine I'm drinking. It just doesn't happen. No, we are driven to Alcoholics Anonymous under the lash of alcoholism and good old-fashioned failure. You know, I just, I'm, I'm not a guy, I'm not a success. You know, I'm not, I'm not a success story in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as an utter failure at the game of life who's been given a new purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, my sobriety date is September 16th, 1991. I'm over 24 years sober, and I'm, I'm having the best life I've ever known, surrounded by the best people I've ever known. And uh, I know if you're new, that delights you too. I know that just makes you so happy. We're so happy for you. Yes, that's great. Maybe you'll die on the way home. That would be terrific. Because <laughs> I was happy for the happy people when I got here, I got to tell you. And, uh... I don't really have any explanation of why I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I just am. I'm an alcoholic because of the strange, bizarre effect alcohol has in my system. It only happens to about 10% of the population. But it happens to me. I am abnormal where drinking is concerned. And I didn't know that about myself for many years while I was out there drinking, so I'm drinking uninformed. I'm drinking ignorant. I'm drinking and I'm having these problems, and I'm thinking it's a moral issue. If I was only a better person, if I only tried harder, these things wouldn't happen to me. And I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to discover the fatal nature of my illness and find out what was really wrong with me. And I'm so grateful for rooms like this and people like you that were here in Alcoholics Anonymous waiting for me, that had blazed the path, 
Because I don't think it's just an honor and privilege to be standing here tonight. I do. I'm just I'm honored to be here in front of you. But I think it's an honor and a privilege just to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Just to be able to go to meetings with people like you and enjoy the gift of sobriety one more day. And this is a gift that for a long time I didn't think I wanted. And then once I wanted it, I knew I'd never make it. Oh, I knew I'd never get sober at Alcoholics Anonymous. Why, why would I think that would happen for me? Because I had tried everything I could think of to put the drink down. And like most alcoholics, I can put the drink down and I can even walk away from it. But there's something about living life on life's terms, day in, day out, trying to be good. At some point, it's just too much work, isn't it? It's just too much work. And I reach for that relief that never lets me down and I tear my life apart again. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I was born in uh, Hollywood, California. Graduated from Hollywood High School, believe it or not. And uh, there's really such a place as that. And, uh, Hollywood's an interesting town. Uh, how's the best way I can describe Hollywood? You ever drive down the street and you look out your car window and you see something really weird? And you think to yourself, wow, there's something you don't see every day. You don't say that in Hollywood because you see it every day. Every day. And the neighborhood I grew up in was, uh, it was pimps, it was hustlers, it was prostitutes, it was street gangs, it was alcoholics, it was drug addicts, it was, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, what a great playground for a budding alcoholic to grow up in. You know, we say in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't feel like we fit in. Move to Hollywood, they won't notice. <laughs> There's alcoholism in my home. My mother's an alcoholic. That's not why I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. They didn't make me an alcoholic. Uh, I might have some stuff I'm going to have to work through through the steps because of how I grew up. Uh, you know, here's the thing about Alcoholics Anonymous and being sober for a while. Not only do we get the honor and privilege of living two entirely different lives. You know, lives that are so different. They don't resemble each other in any way. You could set them on other sides of the room. We've lived the life of the drunkard, and now we get to live the life of the sober alcoholic. And they don't resemble each other at all. And it's really, we get to be two different people in our lifetime. But I'm telling you this also. Through the steps, I actually get to have two different childhoods. Now, I had the childhood that I dragged into Alcoholics Anonymous with me. And it's very tragic. It's very sad. And if I talk about that childhood, hopefully somebody in here will feel sorry for me. And that was always my intention. And it was when I talked about my mom's alcoholism and my, my father who got up off the couch when I was two years old, said he was going out for a pack of smokes and we never saw him again. And uh, it's that tough neighborhood I came from and it's the physical abuse. And it's all of those things that I was so quick to talk about. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I told you those stories of victimization and the abuse and all those things, I wasn't being in delusion. I wasn't in denial. But what it was is I had been telling that side of the story for so long and for so hard, it had become my truth. And my perception is my reality and my reality is my truth. But it was an incomplete picture. But a funny thing happens if you come to AA and you get a sponsor. Let me tell you something. If you want to stay a victim... And Alcoholics Anonymous, do not get a sponsor. 
they will screw up your victimization too quick. Because what happened for me is I got a sponsor and he took me through this 12 steps of recovery, and in particular, the inventory process. And we got to the fourth and fifth step in the inventory process, and it was amazing to me the things I'd conveniently forgotten on my way to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I had a mom that raised three kids on her own. She never took a dime of welfare, any kind of assistance. She got up early and got us off to school. She took two buses to work and two buses home where she picked us up from school, helped us with our homework, put food on that table. I have a mom that made great sacrifices for her children. I have a mom that stayed behind when the heat was so hard and life was so difficult and was a mother to myself and my two sisters when my father ran away and never sent a dime. And yet, that woman, this saint of a woman that gave up so much of her life for her children, by the time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was filled with spite and rage and venom for that woman. And I blamed her for so much. And why do you think that is? Why is it so important that the alcoholic, if he's going to keep drinking, has to play the role of the victim? It's so simple. You see, if it's my fault, I might have to do something about it. I need that justification and that rationalization. I need those stories that I can tell myself in my head that justify and rationalize my next drink. Because the perfect thing about being an alcoholic and a victim, every drink I take, I take with impunity. It's really not my fault. <laughs> if you had come from where I came from and saw the things that I saw, came from the family I came from, you drink too. So why don't you back up and take, get off of my back and take a look at yourself. Why don't you walk a mile in my shoes before you judge me? And that kind of belligerent denial, that alcoholic bluster, kept me sick and stuck in a bottle. And I'm so grateful for the steps in the inventory process in particular that probably corrected the only mistake God ever made in my case. God made my eyes looking outward instead of inward. All my life, from the time I was a little kid, with no effort on my part, I could look out at the world and the people in it and tell you instantly what you're doing wrong. And not only that, I could tell you what you should be doing instead. And I love to share that because I'm a giver. <laughs> but where my life is concerned, where the quality of my life is based on the quality of my actions, I'm a blind man in the wilderness, absolutely no ability to look at myself. I got drunk for the first time when I was 17 years old. It's not my first drink. I'm not really interested in my first drink. I mean, it's cute information if you can remember it, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting drunk. I'm talking about when you get enough alcohol on board in one setting to get there. Because alcohol, as much as anything, it transports me. It takes me to the land of I don't care. And I love that feeling. And the first time that I got drunk... 17 years old, I'm with the uh, high school basketball team that I played for. And these guys are my friends. They're my buddies. And uh, we're uh, driving up the hill up to a place called the Hollywood Reservoir, which is kind of a concrete pond that overlooks the city. And what we were drinking that night was something called Old English 800. And that's a fine malt beverage if there ever was one, I'll tell you. And, uh, and I'm not drinking to get drunk that night. I'm drinking to fit in. 
I'm drinking to fit in with my buddies. And somewhere in that second tall can of malt liquor, I had a feeling come over me that filled me from my toes to my head. And in that moment, from the inside out, everything in my life changed. Yet nothing changed. I'm standing there with the guys that are my friends that I play basketball with. I like these guys. And I look at these guys, and suddenly I realize... I love these guys. And I get all emotional about it, and I start talking about it. You guys, I love you. We're the best. We're going to be together forever, man. I mean it. And I'm listening to the rock and roll come out of that cheap stereo in that rickety car we drove up there that night, and I'm going, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Listen to that. And I'm looking at the sun getting low and shimmering on this concrete pond, the reservoir down there, and it was, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. And then I had something that happened to me that happens every time I drink. I start to think. And what I thought was, i got to get down to that water. It's just so beautiful. i got to get down to that water. And we're on the top on this road, and down to the water is about a 45-degree grade. And it's nothing but chaparral and scrub oaks and things like that. And I don't realize that I'm drunk, so I start walking down this hill. And then I'm walking kind of fast. And then I'm kind of jogging. And then my feet are like windmilling behind my ears. And then I fell. And it was like sky, earth, sky, earth, sky, earth. And I slam into this oak tree. Bam! And I'm all shook up and I stand up and I know I'm going to be hurt. I know I'm going to be hurt. You know, I'm an athlete. You can figure that out quick. And I check myself out. There's no pain. My first drunk, and I'm already acquiring valuable information that's going to serve me for the rest of my drinking career. If you drink enough alcohol... There's no pain. You know, I know there's guys in here that go to the gym and you work out and you have that expression, no pain, no gain. You know, I, I have my own expression. No pain, no pain. <laughs> and I do the things you do when you're 17 years old. You drink too much malt liquor in front of your buddies. I got violently ill. I fell down the hill. My friends made fun of me. They dumped me at my mother's door. My mother yelled at me. I woke up the next day with my first hangover. None of it bothered me. None of it. I remembered something. I remembered the moment on the hill when I was standing there with my buddies and I had that feeling that filled me up from the inside out and for the first time in my life probably. I was where I was doing what I was doing with the people I was doing it with and I didn't want to be anywhere else. I didn't want to be anybody else and I didn't need anything else. I was perfect. I was okay. I had been transported to the land of I don't care. The rough edges got smooth and I got to step out easy and life became perfect. And I fell in love with my first drunk with the effect produced by alcohol. And what's the effect? What's the effect produced by alcohol? We talk about that in the doctor's opinion. If you talk to a social drinker, you will get a very different answer about the effect produced by alcohol than you will from an alcoholic. I've done it. I have friends that are social drinkers, and I ask them, what's the effect? They say, well, you know, sometimes at work you have a tough day, or it's a celebration, and you decide to go out and have a cocktail, and you drink the cocktail, and it produces a feeling of relaxation. And maybe you're in the bar and the music playing, you know, and you hear that beat, baby, you know, and you start to move your feet and tap along with it, and you're feeling pretty good, so you order a second drink. And somewhere in the middle of that second drink, I start to feel it. So I stop. <laughs> no, you don't. 
And I don't understand that's a normal reaction to putting poison in your body. I don't understand that for normal people, when they start to feel alcohol, they don't like the effect produced by alcohol. They get signals from their body that say, stop this, stop putting this in me. I don't like the way this is making me feel. It's making me feel out of control. It's making me feel uneasy. It's making me feel like I'm talking too loud. Alcoholics have a different message. We only have one message, really. More. More, 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 more. Right now, more, more, more. Let's go. When we drink, what's it like? Every night is New Year's Eve. And every morning is Christmas morning. We're just happy. I get excited when I drink. From the first time I drank to last, there's an excitement about it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I take a drink, and all I want to do is have a drink. I just want to have a drink and relax. But I take a drink, and the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes me, and I want to go places. I want to do things. I want to hit the nightlife. I want to make some new friends. And I love the effect produced by alcohol. And the effect for me in a word is relief. I drink for the relief, for the ease and comfort that comes almost immediately with taking a couple of drinks. And I love the effect produced by alcohol. But I don't know what I suffer from. I don't know anything about alcoholism. I don't know when I got drunk for the first time, I lit a fuse to a keg of dynamite. I thought I had a choice. I thought I was doing what I wanted to do. I didn't understand. I think that the I think alcoholism is a progressive disease. And I think like any disease, the progression is different in different people. I think we see people that come in Alcoholics Anonymous, 15, 16, 17 years old, where the progression was incredibly fast in their case. And there is alcoholic and chronic alcoholic is people that have been drinking for 20 years. Other people seem to be able to drink and control it and moderate for 20, 25 years till it turns on them. The progression is different in different individuals. But once we become an alcoholic, we all have that one thing in common. I can't safely put any alcohol in my system without having that allergic reaction. I have an unnatural reaction to alcohol. The unnatural reaction is why other people might have a drink, maybe a drink and a half. They start to feel they want to stop. Once I put alcohol in my system, I can't stop drinking. It produces something we call the phenomenon of craving. And it sets me apart as a completely different entity from the rest of society. Only about 10% of it have it. But we don't know we have it because we only live in our own skin. I mean, I couldn't understand people that didn't drink the way I drank. I mean, we go out to the bar after work, and you know what it's like. You start drinking about 5, 5.30, and about 10, 10.30, it's starting to get good. You know what I mean? It's starting to get really good. That waitress, she's not really that good looking. She's starting to have potential. You know what I mean? <laughs> And you're just getting warmed up and you're thinking, what are we doing? Where are we going next, you know? And there's one of those social drinkers with you. You know, when they stand up, these social drinkers, they stand up and they, they look at their watch and they go, oh my goodness, I didn't realize it was getting so late. I think I should go home. And they leave. It's crazy. <laughs> Alcoholics don't go home. Alcoholics are always willing to room tomorrow for the promise of a couple of more hours of fun tonight. That is the way that we roll. Uh, my wife, Eileen, who's an alcoholic, I mean, this is the best description I can tell you, the difference between social drinkers and alcoholics. When my wife and I got engaged, my sister Patricia threw us a big engagement party. And there were all kinds of people over there. So we're at this party, and there's some social drinker going on. And we're in the kitchen, and we're talking to my, uh, we're talking to my sister, Eileen and I. 
And my sister has a glass of white wine. And uh, at one point, she sees someone in the living room she wants to go talk to. So she takes her wine and she puts it down on the table. And she just walks away. My wife, Eileen, I thought she was going to lose her mind. She's looking at the wine. She's looking at my sister get further away. She's looking at the wine, looking at my sister getting further away. She's getting all anxious. She goes, Pat left her wine. I go, yes, she did. Well, should I go get her? And I said, baby, she's not like us. She's not suffering separation anxiety right now. Alcoholics aren't like that. We'll lose our car keys. We'll lose our clothes. We won't lose our drink. <laughs> Ever. When I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a lot of talk in the rooms. People would say I was born an alcoholic. And other people would say I was a progressive disease. I progressed into an alcoholic. I don't get into that debate. I don't know if I was born alcoholic. I don't, I don't know when the progression took out. It seemed to be very quick in my case. I don't know if I was born out, but I know this. I was born weird. You know what I mean? We always feel just a little bit off, half a bubble off plum. There's just, you can't put your finger on it, you know? And people, people know it too. People know it. People meet you and they meet your family and go, there's something wrong with that boy. You know, they know. Because I'm kind of, I got a nervous disposition. I'm kind of clicky, you know what I mean? And I got the ism, man. I haven't even drank yet. I'm a little kid. I got the ism. You know what I mean? I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. You know what I mean? I'm the Willie Nelson alcoholic version of that song. I was always on my mind. You know? I was always on my mind. I'm the kind of self-centered alcoholic I would trap you in a corner and talk endlessly about myself for half an hour straight. Realize I was doing that and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's enough about me. What do you think of me? <laughs> this self-obsession, this over-concern with myself, this undying love affair I have with my own thinking, these are not things produced by drinking alcohol. These are things that magically reduce or even disappear with a couple of drinks. Dr. Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, talks about a guy like me, and he says men and women drink essentially for the effect produced by alcohol. That effect for me is relief. It's relief from what swirls around in my head in a sober state. The problem is I will quit drinking because my drinking is problematic. I will go to jail. I will lose jobs. I will break hearts and break promises, and I don't want to live that way. I wasn't raised that way. And I'll feel shame and embarrassment for the way that I'm conducting myself as a man. And I'll gather my resources and my strength and I'll say, that's enough of that. I quit, and I will quit drinking. I will make a decision to quit drinking. And it's my idea and I love that decision when I make it. Everyone around me is excited and delighted. My family members, my girlfriend, my employer. Everybody's so happy I made that decision to quit drinking. And I am delighted too. For two and a half days, for four days, for five days. And at some point in my mind, I think, you know, I made too much of this quitting drinking thing. That's ridiculous. And what Silkworth says in the doctor's opinion describes me to the T. It tells me that when a guy like myself quits drinking in very short order, I find myself irritable, restless, and discontent. 
Which, by the way, in my opinion, is the biggest understatement in the big book. <laughs> because irritable, restless, and discontent, it don't sound half bad. It kind of sounds clinical, clinical, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine if I showed up in a meeting and uh, saw my buddy Brendan there, and Brendan said, Donnie, how are you doing? I said, well, this particular evening, Brendan, I do find myself a little irritable, restless, and discontent. If you must know. But it doesn't feel like that in here, does it? Irritable, I want to hurt you. Restless, I think I'll go over here. Nope, that's not it. I'll go over here. Oh, I don't like those people. God, maybe I'll get some ice cream. God, I'm getting fat. You know, just... Wherever I am, it's not the right place. I'm like a dog circling his tail, looking for the right place to lay down, just circling. Nope, nope, nope. I'm restless and discontent. Discontent. Misunderstood. See, when we talk about discontentment in Alcoholics Anonymous, we think that's the same as unhappy. It's not. It's very different. See, happy or unhappy come and go. Happy or unhappy seem to be influenced by things outside of us. The weather, how they're treating us at work, is the money good, is the money bad, what's going on, what's going on with the gut, things outside of us. Happy comes and goes. I can live with happy coming and going. But content or discontent are very, very different and very, very powerful. The best way I can describe discontent in the doctor's opinion is this. When I'm sober and I'm in a discontent state, I have an utter and complete inability to experience joy. You see, alcoholics like it when things are wrong. It gives us a chance to be spiritual, you know what I mean? It's like you got cancer, I got cancer, with God's help I'll be alright. You know? Your wife leaves you, well, you know, she was a good woman, but you know, God, it must be God's will, God will send me something else. You know, it gives us a chance to be spiritual, you know what we don't like? When there's nothing wrong, yet it feels like something's wrong. Like that itch you can't scratch. And you run that mental list in your head and you go, no, no, that's fine, works good, got money, I don't know, I just want to, I don't know what it is, there's nothing wrong. And show up at meetings, how's it going, Don? Good, 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 everything's great. Any better I go on a shooting spree? Yeah, just a terrific, you know? And we're discontent. And we talk about this irritable, restless, and discontent nature, which is untreated alcoholism in a sober state. And Silkworth goes on to say, I'm irritable, restless, and discontent unless I can once again experience the ease and comfort that comes almost immediately with taking a couple of drinks. Drinks I see others taking with impunity. Those are the normal people drinking that are pissing you off when you're sober. It tells me that I will succumb to this urge to drink one more time. And I'll go into a spree and I'll tear my life apart. And at the end of that spree, I'll emerge from it, remorseful, with a firm resolve not to drink again. And Silkworth and the doctor's opinion promised me this will be repeated over and over and over again. And unless this alcoholic can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of my recovery. And what all that means is for a guy like me, it's not am I going to drink again, it's when am I going to drink again. I passed into a region where there's no return to human aid. My dilemma is lack of power, only I don't know it, so I'm bringing a gun to a knife fight. 
I can't figure out why I can't stay away from the first drink, even though it's tearing my life apart. And I don't understand that. Silkworth tells me that I'll get to a point in my alcoholic life that I'll admit that alcohol is injurious to me. I'll admit that it's hurting me. I'll admit that it's tearing my life apart. But he writes, the sensation for alcoholics like me is so elusive, so elusive, that I can't differentiate the true from the false. My alcoholic life seems to be the only normal one. And what does it mean when it says that sensation is so elusive? For me, it means this. I can't make enough money, have enough sex, go up the ladder in business enough. I can't put enough things in the hole that's blowing through my gut. Nothing gets it for a guy like Don like a couple of drinks. And that's all I want. When I drink again, I never drink after a brief period of, re of recovery to crash the car, lose the job, go to jail. I'm drinking to overcome a mental obsession beyond my own control. But the problem is I don't understand alcoholism, so I don't understand that once I put that in me, once too many and a thousand is not enough. And I live with this discontent nature where I have an utter inability to experience joy in a sober state. The thing I have found in Alcoholics Anonymous is discontentment cannot be comforted or corrected by things outside of ourselves, by outside stimuli. But true contentment, which is the product of working the steps and having a relationship with God, when you are truly content in your sobriety, it cannot be affected by outside stimuli. It doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter how the money is. It doesn't matter how the health is. You're going to be content regardless of what the outside stimuli is. It's the most important thing that we can have, I think, in Alcoholics Anonymous. is not just to be physically sober, but to be sober and to be content. What a gift it is to be able to step out easy and enjoy your life and not be a slave to alcohol anymore. By the time I was 25 years old, the light went on. It seemed for years people have been talking to me about my drinking. And I've had them in my life. I'm sure you've all had them in your life. The well-meaning people. And you know who the well-meaning people are. You know, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're district attorneys, they're doctors that are stitching you up and you don't feel the needle and they think that's weird. And uh, They all said the same thing to me. And they started this brainwashing campaign without my permission. And I don't blame these people. They didn't know any more about alcoholism than I did. And all these people that cared about me and loved about me, they're almost saying the same thing and they're brainwashing me. They're saying things like, you seem like a great guy. It seems to me you have a lot of potential. You could probably be anything you wanted to be, go anywhere you wanted to go, do anything you wanted to do if you just quit drinking. If you just quit drinking, you'd be so happy. If you just quit drinking, everything would work out. If you just quit drinking, all your dreams would come true. And I hear that stuff and I think about it and I look at my life and I go, well, yeah, I went to jail, I was drinking. Lost a job, I was drinking. Blew up the relationship, I was drinking. Yeah, it's the booze. And I suffer from the delusion that if I just quit drinking, everything in my life will be fine. So I make another vain attempt to just quit drinking and you know what? Everything in my life ain't fine. And I can't stand the way I feel when I'm sober. And by the time I was 25 years old and that light went on and I had what our big book describes is self-knowledge. Which is not the courts telling me, it's not mom telling me, it's not my girlfriend telling me, it's not my employer telling me i got a problem, it's me. And self-knowledge, by the way, isn't delivered by those people. Self-knowledge was delivered to me in a dirty motel room about 2 in the morning. 
And there's all this screaming in the room. And then I realized it's dead quiet in that room. And all the noise was in my head and my voice. And the voice kept saying, if you don't quit drinking, you're going to die. And I got it. And I decided that I was going to quit drinking. And I made the alcoholic declaration. I told everybody I could think of that I'm quitting drinking. Don't try to tempt me. I called up my pharmaceutical representative of record and uh, told him not to sell me anything because uh, they're a very reputable type of person. And if you ask him not to sell you nothing, they won't, you know, so. Uh. And I actually quit drinking. I didn't come to AA. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't work your 12 steps. And I quit drinking without you. Thank you very much. For two weeks. <laughs> and the funny thing about this two weeks, you know, we talk about alcoholism as the family disease, and I really believe that, you know, that's when the tentacles that are alcoholism really start to stretch out and start to affect the family. You know what I mean? Because before that, the family's having those backroom meetings about me, you know, and they're talking about me. And they're saying, what are we going to do about Donald? What are we going to do about his drinking? And you say, what can we do? He doesn't get it. He says he's having a good time. He says it's no big deal. You know, he's saying things like, well, everybody goes to jail once in a while. You know, I just, if he doesn't get it, he doesn't get it. And then what do I do? I make the declaration that I'm quitting drinking. You know, my family's having those meetings again. They're saying, did you hear? Did you hear the good news? He quit drinking. No, no, it was his idea. No, he didn't go to jail or nothing. He just quit. Yeah, it's been like a week. No, he says he's happy. And I give my family the worst thing a drinking drunk can give their family in those brief moments of recovery. I give my family hope. Because when I tell them I'm quitting and I'm not going to do it again, I'm not lying, I mean it. I mean it to the marrow of my bones. I mean it to the bottom of my soul. When I tell you I'm quitting drinking, I mean it. I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to hurt you anymore. I mean it. I'm not lying. But here's the problem. There's no room for the truth where the game of alcoholism is played out. So there's no room for that truth, and I say those things and I mean them, and then my family sees me all lit up a couple of weeks later, and they think to themselves, oh my God, he's drinking again, what happened? And I have to justify and rationalize why I'm back on the sauce, why I'm drinking again. And I pulled a big geographic, you know, I, uh, I figured out that Los Angeles was my problem, so I moved to Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, <laughs> found out, much to my surprise, they drink in Boston. Uh, <laughs> I think they drink more, and, uh, and I stayed in Boston for about three years until I wore out my welcome, and then uh, I came back to Los Angeles, and I got the best job I've ever had in my life right after I got to L.A. I don't mean the best job drinking. I mean the best job to date I've ever had in my life I got when I came back to L.A. Alcoholics are amazing people. We are like a cat flung outside a second-story window. We land on our feet, boom. In a three-piece suit at a job interview, you know? And we get the job. We can get jobs, we can get girls, we can get money, we just can't keep any of it, you know? And I did a great job at that company, and then the owner, you know, he made that fatal mistake. He came up to me one day after I'd worked there for about six months. He put his arm around me, and he said, Don, I want you to know, you've done a great job here. 
And I don't know about you, but I have an alcoholic translator in my head. And when he told me I did a great job, this is what I heard. Don, I want you to know you've done a great job. You should probably slack off a little bit. And, uh, you know, I start, I start getting drunk before I go to work. I start showing up hungover. I start missing time. I start doing the old behavior, you know. And, uh, and I get fired for my drinking. And, uh, and I play the recovery card to my sister in Simi Valley, California. I call her up and I go, Pat, they fired me after all I did for them. And, uh, and I need a place to get on my feet. Uh, can I come stay at your house? And my sister said, listen, Don, you can come stay at my house, but if you drink, you're out of my house. Because everybody knows I'm a drunk. And I told my beautiful sister, Patricia, I won't drink, I promise. And I drank every day in that house for like seven months. And if you don't know how you do that when they're watching you, hmm, maybe you're not a sneaky rat like I am. <laughs> I got no problem drinking around your schedule. I'm unemployed. You know? What time do you go to work in the morning? 7 a.m.? Bars open. And at this point in my drinking, I'm not drinking to kid myself I'm better looking than I am. I'm not drinking so I can feel closer to my friends. I'm doing oblivion drinking. I'm doing light switch drinking. I'm getting the whiskey on board hard enough and fast enough to shut off my head so I can go into a blackout, so I can pass out in this room I'm mooching off of my family, so I can come to the hideous four horsemen, terror, frustration, bewilderment, despair. They sat on the end of the bed and they waited for me to come to and then they asked me questions and made statements in my voice in my head like, who are you going to rip off today, Don? Who are you going to hurt today, Don? Who are you going to take advantage of today, Don? And I don't know what you do with a head like that when you're hungover in the morning, but I just took another pull off the bottle. And I swear I thought I was going to go down that way and it was going to end that way because I had surrendered. And it's not the kind of surrender we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had surrendered to the fact that I was a drunk and I was going to die drunk. And I was too much of a coward to kill myself, but I couldn't go on any longer. I was so tired of fighting the drink. So I stopped working. I stopped driving. I stopped dating. I just lived to stay in that bottle and get one more day. I know everything there is to know about living one day at a time. I know everything there is to know about singleness of purpose. I lived it as a drunk, where my only job that day was to get drunk and do whatever it took to get drunk. A few days before I got sober, I got an unemployment check from the state of California, and I went up to my brother-in-law, Larry, and I said, Larry, I got my unemployment check. Can I borrow your car? And Larry asked me a funny question. He said, Don, will you be coming back this time? <laughs> it was a fair question. Uh, I had borrowed his car a few times that summer and gone out on little alcoholic vacations. We know what those are. And uh, The 12 and 12 tells me my outstanding characteristic is defiance. And when Larry said that, I got right in his face and I said, Larry, how dare you? You know, the last time this happened, I apologized to you. I opened my heart to you, Larry. I don't really need this crap. And... Uh, Larry, untreated Al-Anon that he was, felt terrible when he took the keys out. And I snatched the keys from this man who I'm mooching a room off, left his house to get in his car. And I remember thinking, there better be gas in it. You know, just <laughs> the delusions of entitlement that this alcoholic suffers from don't have any boundaries. And, uh, and I go down to the liquor store to cash my unemployment check, because that's where drunks like me cash their unemployment checks. And while I'm in line, I have what the book refers to as the thought that precedes the first drink. And in my head, it's always like this. I'll just get a half pint. What's a half pint? And I got the half pint, and I drank it in the car, and I decided to get another one, and I drank that. And I thought, you know, I can go see those friends in the valley and be back in 45 minutes. They'll never miss me, and I'm gone. Three days later, 
I'm driving up the hill to face his family. I've done over one more time. One more time, I've taken their hope, their faith, and their trust, and I've torn it to shreds. And you need to understand this. Driving up the hill to face this family, I've done over once again. I love them no less than I love them at this very moment. And I love my family tremendously. But I can't serve two masters. i only got time to serve one. And that's King Alcohol. And you get between me and a drink, it's nothing personal. It's almost business-like. I'm getting to the drink. I'm going around you, through you, lying to you, manipulating you. But bet your bottom dollar I'm getting to the drink. But I don't know anything about alcoholism, so I can't explain that to you. I can't warn you. I can't tell you, look, I don't know why I do these things. I'm as surprised as you are. Save yourself. Get away from me. I'm going to hurt you again. So I say things like, I'm sorry. Man, I didn't mean for it to happen. It just got away from me. Can you give me another chance? And it got hard for my family to give me those second, those third, and those 30th chances when I roared through their life year after year after year. I walk into this house that's been devastated by the disease of alcoholism to face the heat. And I find out that uh, my brother-in-law wanted to report the car stolen. And my sister negotiated him down to a missing persons report. <laughs> and the Simi Valley, California police are on their way up to do the follow-up work. Now, I don't know if you've ever been up for three straight days drinking and doing outside issues. But the police usually aren't who you want to talk to. Uh, I got warrants for my arrest in two counties. So I start yelling at my sister. I got warrants. I'm going to jail. Thanks for nothing. I go outside to wait for the police because I don't want the interview to go on in front of the family. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to be saying, but I'm fairly certain I'm going to be lying, right? And, uh, and so I'm outside smoking a cigarette waiting for the cops, and here comes the black and white up the hill, and on the side of the black and white it says, Canine Unit. And I think, oh good, they brought the dog. <laughs> like I'm in any shape to make a run for it. And, uh, and the cop gets out, and uh, he starts asking me those hard, tough questions, because they're trained professionals, after all, like, uh, where were you? And uh, everything I remember is illegal, so I'm making up a story. And he's looking at my eyes really hard because they're like rolling up in my head. And, and he locks my gaze, so I break the gaze. And now he goes over here, and now we're interviewing and dancing. And I don't feel good. <coughs> my hands are getting wet. and I just want to divert his attention. And I see the dog in the back seat, and I go, hey, is that your partner? And he says, well, yes, it is. And he walks over and opens the door. And this dog gets out. German Shepherd. Not a hair out of place. Like a Rin Tin Tin reincarnate. And with no prompting on my part, he started to relay facts to me about the dog's life. The dog is past mandatory retirement. They can't retire him. He's too good. The dog has participated in more arrests than any dog in the history of Ventura County. This dog had participated and more arrests and rescues than any dog in Ventura or Los Angeles County. This dog was so phenomenal that the officers took a collection out of pocket to send him to Europe for international competition where he kicked butt on German, German shepherds. <laughs> so, And I remember saying to the cop, I said, well, that's a phenomenal dog you have there, sir. And, uh, and this thought flew in the back of my mind, the kind of thought the minute you think it, you know it's the truth. You want to deny it, but you know it's the truth. And what the truth was is this dog had done significantly more with his life than I had done with mine. 
and I hated that dog. <laughs> I walk back into the house that's been devastated by the disease of alcoholism. They want me gone. You know when you've hurt them so bad they can't look you in the eye anymore? I talked to my sister years later because she asked me to leave her house. She said, I know you're going to die and there's nothing I can do about it, but you can't die here. She never took her eyes off her feet. And when I asked her years later, I said, why wouldn't you look at me when you were telling me to leave your house? She goes, I didn't want you to lie to my face one more time. And if I had any true respect or true love of another human being, I would have taken that. I would have said, you're right. You're right for asking me that. I would have got my gear and cleared out. But I'm an alcoholic and I'm not too proud, proud to beg. And I begged for another chance. I gave an Academy Award worthy performance. I turned on the waterworks and I begged like a little boy. Please give me another chance. I got nowhere to go. I'll die out there. I'm so sick. I'll go to AA and everything. <laughs> and then kind of look behind me to see who said the last part because I wasn't thinking about AA the day before I got here. And I'll tell you what, man. It's not like my family really believed I was going to go to AA. My first few days in Alcoholics Anonymous, my sister took me to AA and picked me up from AA. You know how that makes you feel when you look the way I look and you get in your older sister's little compact car at the end of an evening of AA? You're all scrunched in the car going back to her house, 31-year-old loser brother. And... So, Donald, what'd you learn in AA tonight? You know <laughs> And listen, I've been asked to take a five-minute break. You can use the bathroom, have a smoke, and we'll come back and finish the story. Thanks. Welcome back. Still Don Landis, still an alcoholic? So I don't remember my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I was in uh, very bad shape. I was detoxing a lot. Uh, everyone that was at my first meeting uh, assures me that I was there and uh, incredibly entertaining. <laughs> but I do remember my second meeting, my second night in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it's a very important night in my life, probably the most important night uh, I've ever had in my life. Uh, you know, something happened to me in AA in that second evening in Alcoholics Anonymous that, uh, you know, hopefully will happen in AA all over the world. In good AA, it'll happen tonight. And uh, it saved my life. And uh, I'm at the Simi Valley Alano Club. I attended the 6 o'clock meeting, and now I'm waiting for the 8 o'clock meeting to uh, start. I got my back against the wall. And, uh, and I don't think I can stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm coming up on 48 hours without a drink, and uh, my body's coming apart. I'm shaking apart from the inside out. Uh, every molecule in my body is screaming to get another drink. And I'm looking at the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they just don't look like me. I mean, you're clean, and your clothes are clean. And, you know, I'm sitting with my back against the wall. I got hair down my back. It's greasy. I don't shower anymore. I got a full beard with food stuck in it. I've lost the ability to speak English. I communicate in a series of hand gestures, grunts, and clicks. How's it going? You know, and just, uh, I'm wearing my sunglasses at night. I got my arms folded. I got my tough guy radar out. And I'm dangerous because I'm terrified. 
I'm so terrified. And anybody terrified is dangerous. And the people of the Simi Valley Alano Club are staying away from me that night. And they were right to stay away from me. I don't blame them the way I look. And I know I can't stay there any longer. And everything in my head is screaming over and over again. Go get a drink, Don. What are you doing to yourself? You know you're going to drink anyway. Why are you putting yourself through this? You're not like these people. Look at them. They're all clean. They don't drink anymore. You always drink. You always drink. Why don't you bypass the pain? Go get the drink now. Go get the drink. And I'm leaving Alcoholics Anonymous because I can't take the pain of sobriety. And I'm thinking AA is just going to be another thing that doesn't work for a guy named Don. And yeah, I'm going to get thrown out and I won't have a place to live, but I'll worry about that later because right now I've got one primary purpose and that's I'm detoxing from alcohol and I need to get another drink. And it's the most important moment of my life. Whether I live or die is going to be decided in the next few moments. And although it's the most important moment in my life, over in the corner are a couple of card-carrying members of Alcoholics Anonymous named Lou and Mark. And although it's the most important thing for me, seconds and inches, whether I live or die, for Mark and Lou, it was Tuesday. <laughs> and Mark and Lou were where they were every Tuesday, and every Wednesday, and every Thursday at the Simi Valley Alano Club between the 6 o'clock and the 8 o'clock meeting. They sit there and they drink coffee and they had their eyes trained on the door and they had their eyes trained in the room. And they were looking for Newman to 12-step. And the story goes that Lou saw me and went, whoa. And Mark said, yeah. And Lou said, I bet we can't get him sober. And Mark said, well, we're here anyway. And they did something that I hope I never take for granted. It's such a niceness, such a politeness that, you know, I think we underestimate its importance. I personally believe it's the most important thing that occurs in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's more important than the format, the literature, who's speaking, what's going on. It's the most important thing that occurs in Alcoholics Anonymous at our meetings. Two good members of Alcoholics Anonymous took a 30-foot walk across a clubhouse to introduce themselves to a new man. And say, hi, my name's Lou, this is Mark. We don't think we've met you. Why don't you come sit with us? And that cordialness, introducing, welcoming me cordially to Alcoholics Anonymous, the reason that's so important, because if you expect me to walk that same 30 feet to Lou and Mark, I can't do it. It's a million miles. Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know where I've been? This is the lowest point of my existence. My whole body's coming apart, screaming for alcohol. I can't get my eyes off of my shoes. No, Mark and Lou understood that about the new man, and they understood it about alcoholism. And they knew they had to carry the message to me that I couldn't come and get it. They sat me down at a table. Mark sat down with me with half a cup of coffee. Lou stayed standing and clapped me on the back and said, Okay, Don, this is Mark. He'll be your sponsor. And he walked away. <laughs> And they assigned me my first sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and I know that's not done everywhere, but in my case, it was a probably good idea. Because we hear things in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we say them to each other. We've been saying them so long, we just say it. They said it to us. We're saying it to them. I don't think we think about it anymore. Every meeting I go to in the format, we talk about sponsorship. Get a sponsor, get a sponsor, get a sponsor. My favorite one. Why don't you find somebody that has what you want? Huh. I wonder what I want my second night in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have picked the weenie boy they assigned to me, because he's everything I'm not, you know what I mean? He's soft-spoken, he's clean-cut, 
He's not profane. I mean, he's... I know I wouldn't have picked that guy because I never picked that guy. You know what I mean? I would have picked the guy, the guy sitting in the back of the room making fun of the old timers, making fun of the big book, cruising the newcomer chicks, loser, who was going to die from alcoholism. That's who I would have picked. How do I know that? I always pick that guy. <laughs> who do you think I was running out there with out there? You know, I run, I run with the knuckleheads. I run with the guys that right before they go to the hospital, they say, hey, watch this. That's who I run with. <laughs> and I'd have never picked Mark. Clean cut, God-fearing. Man, and he had something. He had something I didn't have for anything in the world, let alone God or Alcoholics Anonymous. He had reverence. You could feel it coming off of him. The respect he had for God and Alcoholics Anonymous. That spiritual enthusiasm. A man that was sufficiently armed with facts about himself, that was willing to carry the message to the still-suffering alcoholic, that guy was able to win my confidence in a couple hours. People have been trying to get to me for years. And that guy, when he started talking about his drinking, I knew he had been where I had been, he had felt the way I had felt, and he wasn't living or feeling that way anymore. And he was a man that had an answer, and I was intrigued by him. And I remember he started doing things immediately. I just met the guy doing these things without my permission, I might add, he got a meeting directory. And he started telling me, these are meetings I'm going to be going to. I know that because he said, these are the meetings you're going to be going to. <laughs> and he started circling these meetings. And while he's circling the meetings, you'll be going here on Monday, you'll be going here on Tuesday. And he's talking to me about AA, you'll be going here on Wednesday. And then he stopped and went, oh, are you working? I said, no, I'm, I'm currently unemployed. More circling, more circling, more circling. He gets me a big book of 12 and 12, hands me the meeting directory, and then he insults me. Because if you're going to sponsor somebody, it's important to insult them as soon as possible when you start working with them. And he says to me, hey, kid, do you think you can go home tonight and not drink? I go, oh, my God, it's my second day of recovery, for God's sakes. That's just rude. And it offended me. And I said to him, I said, listen, buddy, any idiot can go a day without drinking. And he lit up like Christmas. He goes, oh, you're going to be perfect for our program. <laughs> I got in my sister's car that night. She saw all the books and she went, Jesus. I go, I know. I think I got homework. And, uh... I go back to Simi Valley Alano Club the next night. My sponsor's there. We attend two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous together. And then we sit down and we talk, start talking about the program. My sponsor got me busy in the steps immediately. My sponsor got me praying right away. He said, listen, when you go home tonight, well, what he said was, when you go home tonight to that bedroom, you're mooching off of your family. <laughs> and he started working on my ego right away. And, uh, he says, I want you to get on your knees and I want you to pray to God and I want you to thank God for keeping you sober today. And when you get up tomorrow, I want you to ask God to keep you sober that day. And I said, but I don't believe in God. He goes, that's funny. I don't remember asking you if you believed in God. <laughs> he goes, listen, go home tonight, get on your knees next to your bed and thank God for keeping you sober. And I interject. I said, but I don't believe in God. He goes, man, this is going to take all night. <laughs> And he had me stand up. He stood up. He goes, stand up. So I stood up and he goes, he tips his leg. He goes, he lifts his leg up. He goes, lift your leg up like this. 
And I do it. He goes, lift the other one. Lift your leg up like this. And I lift that. And he goes, great, your knees work. You can pray. (laughs) I'm on my third day of sobriety. I'm back at my sister's house. I got the bedroom door locked. Drapes closed. Lights off. I'm alone. God forbid anybody sees me doing something for myself that's good. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. I don't believe in God. And I had this intuition that I didn't have the luxury of fighting one more thing in my life. And I got down on my knees next to this bed. And I prayed to a God I didn't believe in. And I love to tell you it was spiritual. It wasn't. I wasn't thinking about God and His his majesty and maybe He could save my life, a poor wretch like me. I was thinking things like this. Should I be dressed for this? You know, these are the kind of things I'm thinking. And I think about that perfect willingness of the newcomer. I think about the willingness it takes to get on your knees next to a bed and pray to a God you don't believe in. And why is that possible when we're new in Alcoholics Anonymous? What makes that possible? You know, there's something that every good newcomer has. It's the most valuable thing you can have in recovery. But when you're new, nobody recognizes its value. In fact, we don't think it's valuable at all. We hate it. We want to get rid of it as soon as possible. Because this thing is keeping us up at night. It produces shame. It produces guilt. It makes us feel terrible at ourselves. It won't allow you to sleep at night. And what this thing is, is desperation. This desperation that brings us into Alcoholics Anonymous. But curiously enough, this desperation that I talk about turns out to be the propellant that pushes us through the steps. And the funny thing about it also is like any propellant you can think of, you don't have an inexhaustible supply. How much do you have? 30 days? 60 days? 90 days, anybody that's ever sponsored anybody for any length of time knows when that person ran out of their propellant. My wife and I are self-professed AA geeks, you know what I mean? And We go to thrift stores, and when we're in thrift stores shopping and looking around, we always go to the library section. And we're looking for AA literature to rescue, you know what I mean? Go find the poor little lost big books that somebody cast aside and rescue the little big book and pay a buck for it, whatever, and take it to the meetings. And what I've done over the years when we've gotten these big books from thrift stores is I always open them up and I study them. I see what's in it. You know, it's like, it's like being an alcoholic anthropologist or something, you know. And, I, and you open it up, man, and there's always a name in there, right? There's a name and there's a sobriety date written down. And the sobriety date is in ink. And I'm always thinking, man, that's optimistic. You know what I mean? You know? <laughs> And I start flipping through it, you know, and I'll be in the doctor's opinion, man. There's highlighting, there's notes in the margin, you know, obsession of the mind, coupled with a physical allergy. And I'm thinking, oh, good, good, they got that right, you know, and I'm judging them. You know, they're not here, it's just their book. I think it'd be dead, but I'm judging them anyway. And as I'm going through the chapters, you know, I'm watching the highlight, you know, we agnostics, and they got all the right stuff highlighted. Okay, they got through the second step, you know, and they come to the third step, and they got everything highlighted, you know. And usually, right when they get to the inventory process, you know, the highlighting stops. And the rest of the book, you can flip through it, and it's like nobody's ever turned the page. Right up into the third step, so much work, and then nothing. And I look at that delineation between all the work and the highlighting and all those clean pages, and I go, that's when they lost their propulsion. That's when they lost their desperation. And like they used to say in my first home group, hurry, hurry, lest the test comes early. 
And there was so much I didn't understand about alcoholism. Because I come to alcoholism and I have these self-delusions, these thoughts about myself that I think are true that aren't true. I think I'm a perfectly wonderful human being, except I just drink too much. I've been brainwashed into believing that if I just don't drink, everything's going to be okay. My grand sponsor used to tell me, listen kid, whiskey didn't make you what you were. Whiskey exposed you for what you were. And I didn't believe that. I admitted I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, but that was when I was drinking. Because I wouldn't do those things sober until I continued to lie, cheat, and steal sober. <laughs> I remember my sponsor, he was so nice to me for my first 30 days. You know what I mean? Just really nice to me. He didn't put a lot of demands on me. He wanted me to be at the meetings. He wanted me to be doing my step work. He wanted me to show up early, stay late, take commitments and all that. But he didn't really bug me about much of anything. I kind of was falling in love with AA. And then I got a 30-day chip and everything's changed. You know what I mean? He just kind of turned on me. And uh, He comes up to me after the meeting. He goes, congratulations. He goes, by the way, is there any particular reason you're not working? And I, you know, I built a relationship with the guy. If I knew how he was going to react, I probably would have lied to him. And I, I said, well, I don't have to work. I'm collecting unemployment. That was a mistake. <laughs> you want to piss your sponsor off, have a sponsor that works with his hands swinging a hammer for a living and tell him you don't have to work because you're collecting unemployment. Man, I had never seen him angry before. <laughs> you ever seen somebody so angry they start to talk and they realize they're about to say something inappropriate and they stop? He's like, listen, Don, the point is... <laughs> Listen, Don, what the program teaches us. <laughs> and finally, he stammered out, is there any reason other than sheer laziness that you can't get a job? And I thought about it and I went, no. <laughs> and we sat down to plan out my financial future and I had a big business background in aerospace and I start talking about going into that field and I had some contacts left. And he said, No. Actually, he said no the way he always said no. He said it three times. No, no, no. He goes, no, if you go back into that, you'll make the big money, and then your ego won't be smashed, and then you'll drink, and you'll die, and it won't matter anyway. No, Don, for you, we need something humbling. We need something that will keep you busy between meetings, and that's all we need right now. He goes, he's looking at my resume. He goes, well, I see you've never worked on your hands, with your hands before. And I go, now, nah, man, I barely know which end to hold a hammer. He said, fascinating. <laughs> Next day he comes in the clubhouse and I find out he got me a job as a laborer on a framing crew. Now, I'd love to tell you at this part of my story I discovered my true calling was to work with my hands. I'd be lying. I was terrible at that job. I sucked at that job. I had a nickname on the job site, The Bleeder. <laughs> so now I'm going to two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I a job that I suck at, bleeding there all day just to go back to two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I, man, if you want what I have, what a gift, it's a miracle, I'm going nuts today, but you know what, I'm staying sober and I'm putting time together, and my sponsor was like, you know, he was like that quiet Yoda kind of ninja guy, you know, and it's like, just when you trusted him, he just slide the blade in, you'd never see it coming, you know, and, uh, Man, I remember I'm a couple of months, so maybe three months sober at the most, you know, and he, he comes up to me and out of the blue, he goes, listen, man, what are you doing to say thank you to that family of yours that you treated so poorly that's letting you get sober in their house? I said, well, I'm, I'm not drinking. He said, huh, that's mighty big of you. He goes, go home tonight and ask your sister if there's anything you can do for her. 
That sounded simple to me. And so I went home that night and I said, so listen, Pat, uh, my sponsor wants to know. Uh, <laughs> is there anything I can say, do for you to say thank you for letting me stay here? And she didn't miss a beat. She goes, well, you can paint my house. And I said, your whole house? And, uh, and I said, uh, I got to talk to my sponsor, you know. And, uh, <laughs> So I go back to my sponsor and I go, this crazy woman wants me to paint her 3,800 square foot house. And he goes, is she buying the paint? And I go, I assume. And he goes, ah, paint her house. You got off easy. And he walked away. He always used to do this. He would just tell me things and then walk away dismissively, you know. And it would just <laughs> piss me off, you know. Like conversation over, you know. <laughs> and it pissed me off. So I yelled at the back of his bald head. I said, hey, I thought this program was suggested. That was a mistake. Um, I didn't know he could move like that. You know what I mean? Just, he's spun around. He's back in my face. And he's, he's looking up at me. I'm looking down at him. He's pointing that bony finger at me. And he goes, listen, Don, you're so sick that anything that comes out of my mouth from this point forward, I want you to assume it's a direction. And we'll let you know when you've passed into the suggestion phase of the program. <laughs> So now I'm going to two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous a night, going to work, bleeding over there, only to go home and do a little painting on the house. And I'm bitter. Bitter! I am not happy about doing that. But you see, my sponsor was a student of the big book. My sponsor was a student of the big book. And I had been talking to my sponsor, and I had told him that I couldn't sleep at night. And I told my sponsor that my sister and I, who I love very dearly, we couldn't be in the same room at the same time and look at each other. And that all the good that we once had between us had been washed away by a lot of whiskey and a lot of alcoholism, and I didn't know how to make that right. And she felt uncomfortable around me, and I felt uncomfortable around her. And my sponsor, being a student of the big book, understood the immense process. And he understood that our man will be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than our talk of spiritual discoveries. See, I'm the kind of alcoholic, I want to come to you and I want to make amends and I want to say, hey, I'm sorry I stole your car, stole your money, broke your heart, but I found God, I'm an AA, we're all good, right? <laughs> my sponsor said, no, 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 that will not work. There's a long period of reconstruction ahead and we must take the lead. A mumbling apology that we are sorry will not fit the bill at all. He wanted to see that spiritual demonstration, that demonstration of goodwill. So he's got me painting her house, and I think I'm doing it for her, because I have everything backwards in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll never know for sure what it did for her. She said it caused a healing, but I know what it did for me. The further I got into that process, the more I could be in the same room as my sister. The further I got along with that process, the more it seemed to be okay to be with her and breathe the same air. And by the time I finished that little paint job, we weren't even steaming, not by a long shot. But you know what? I could be in the same room with my sister at the same time, look her in the eyes, and Alcoholics Anonymous and the immense process of good, strong sponsorship had given me back one of the most prized possessions I had in my life, which is the love of my sister that my disease took from me. It's amazing what strong sponsorship will do for you. But it wasn't all easy, and it wasn't like I was Mr. Willingness and Alcoholics Anonymous. I fought this thing every step of the way. Because I'm fear-based, and I'm grandiose. I'm the kind of guy, I'm drowning in the ocean. You can throw me a life preserver. I'll look at it and go, hey, wrong color, and chuck it back at you. I'm just that kind of guy.
And I stalled out between my third and fourth step. I made it to the third step very quickly. My sponsor lined me out on the fourth step. And I meant to write it. I read the book. I read the book that said, you know, we can't delay after this, that we could have a profound effect in our life spiritually after we take the third step. And the warning that this step, our decision, of course, would have little lasting effect unless followed at once, which means immediately, which means now, right after we do the third step, followed at once by a strenuous effort to rid ourselves of the things that have been blocking us off from Him. It says, i got to start on my inventory. i got to get into steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. But I didn't do that. I felt I had been busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to 14 meetings a week. I'm bleeding at this job site. I'm painting their house. I just want a little break. Going to 87 nights a week. I'm begging my sponsor, give me a night off, man. You're going to kill me. I'm going to die from lack of sleep. You know what he says, ah, nobody ever died from lack of sleep. Man, when he said that to me, you know what I thought? I'm going to die from lack of sleep. No, no, no. I want to die from lack of sleep. I make it my mission to die from lack of sleep. I had this vision of my sponsor and his sponsor standing in my grave going, shit, we killed one of them. You know? I was going to be a martyr for everybody in AA. But I don't write that four-step. And I start going crazy from untreated alcoholism in Alcoholics Anonymous. 14 meetings a week, 14 commitments to those meetings, cleaning up, setting up, talking to new guys, doing everything I'm asked in Alcoholics Anonymous, except working the steps. And I'm stalled out between three and four, and I start to go plain crazy sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm talking to my sponsor about the fear's back, the terror's back, the crazy's back, I can't think straight, I can't hold a thought in my mind, I'm going nuts, I hate everybody, I'm going to hurt somebody. He says, man, it's because you're not writing your inventory. You know what your problem is, Don? You're never with us. You're never here right now in the moment. You're never in the moment, Don. Every time I talk to you, you're in the past and remorse or the future and worry. Past and remorse, future and worry. But you're never here in the moment, Don. You've got to be in the moment. The moment's cool. And I don't know what he's talking about, the moment, the moment. I've got a head like a beehive. He's like, Don, right now, you and me at the clubhouse, right now, everything okay? I said, well, yeah, it's okay right now, but tomorrow. He goes, see? He just left the moment. What's he talking about the moment? And he explained to me that until I wrote my inventory and completed the rest of my steps, I could never be in the moment. And the reason that that was so important for an alcoholic is the moment was the only place I could meet God. And I didn't have the power to stay away from a drink on a daily basis. And without that needed power from God, I was sure to drink again. And I would be cut off from that power because I could never be in the moment where I could meet God. I'd be in the past and remorse or the future and worry. And I don't believe him. And I make it to four months of sobriety and I'm going to quit AA. I mean, I've been sober a really, 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 really long time. Like four months. You think I'm kidding, man? You're a daily drunk? Go 120 days without a drink. It's forever. And it's certainly long enough to make a decision whether something's working for you or not. Don't talk to anybody about it. Just figure that out on your own like I did. And I'm going to quit AA. I mean, I get up on a Friday. The Fridays are always the worst. I'm the most tired. I just don't think I can make it another day. And Screw it. I'm going to go to AA that night and resign. If i got to sign something, I'll sign something. I don't care. Then I leave my sister's house to go work this job where I bleed during the day. And it's 4.30 in the morning like it is every day I leave for work. And it, it's dark. You know what I mean? It's dark everywhere at 4.30 in the morning. And it, it's quiet. And the self-pity is just hanging down on me. You know what I mean? I just feel so bad. AA. Gotta quit. <laughs> Just another thing that didn't work for Don. And I'm thinking about my sponsor and how disappointed he's going to be. And 
ah, man, I just felt so bad. And I'm walking down the hill, and I got my framing bags and my, my little pal lunchbox with my cheap meat sandwiches in it because it's all I can afford. Just this loser walking down the street in the dark. And, and then I saw him. A couple of dogs got out of the neighbor's house. Big ones, Rottweilers, 80-pounders. Beautiful animals. And they're doing exactly what 80-pound Rottweilers do when they get out of the neighbor's house at 4.30 in the morning. They're chasing each other across the lawn. They're jumping over hedges. They're rolling on the grass on their back. And i got to tell you, it stopped me right in my place. And I'm watching these beautiful, magnificent animals play with each other. And I'll be honest with you, it lifted my spirits. And then they saw me. (laughs) And they looked at each other. And then they looked at me and they looked at each other and they charged me. And I started screaming like a six-year-old girl. And I start running backwards and they're coming at my feet. And I'm fending them off with my framing bags and my lunchbox like some scared newcomer alcoholic matador just running backwards down the hill. I was of such service to these dogs because they were having a ball with me. And I, let's see how high he jumps this time. I'm over clearing hedges and... I get to the bottom of the hill and the dogs get bored and run back up the hill and they're at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> and now I'm not leaving AA. But you can't waste a story like that, you know. I'm not leaving at least until I tell my sponsor, you know. And I, I find my sponsor at the meeting that night and I tell him a three-minute story in 30 seconds like a good newcomer. And they tried to kill me. They had teeth like this and I fought them off and I jumped it. And he patiently listens to the whole thing, and I get to the end, and he says, Well, I bet you're in the moment. (laughs) And my sponsor could put a spiritual spin on anything. He said, Listen, Don, I love you very much, and I know that God loves you very much, too. And I hope he doesn't have to send any more Rottweilers after you to prove it. And he suggested that I write my inventory. And I agreed. And I wrote that inventory. And things started happening to me quickly. I mean, right after I finished that fourth and fifth step, you know, my sponsor told me, now it's time to start working with guys. you got something to give away. And I'm like, I'm not even done with my steps. He goes, ah, don't worry about it. You'll be ready. You just keep working on your steps. You tell God to put someone in your life, someone's going to show up. And I don't think I'm ready. I mean, my God, I'm six months sober by now. I'm living at my sister's house. I'm hopelessly in debt. I'm working at a job I bleed at every day. What, if you want what I have? Are you kidding me? I don't even have a car. So I go on a 12-step this one, this one night, and it's me and another guy with six months and a guy with 14 years. And so we go and we 12-step this guy named Donnie, and the guy with six months talks to him, and he was really good. And the guy with 14 years talked to him, and he was amazing. And then I talked to him, and you know, my stuff at six months sounded like this. Uh, uh, I haven't had a drink in six months. Uh, I got this guy called Sponsor. He's kind of a tyrant, but he tells me what to do. And, uh, I don't know. I go to a lot of meetings. I'm not happy most of the time, but I haven't drank. I don't know if you want what I have. And, uh, you know, just there's no hope there. And, uh, and we leave, and the guy's still drinking. And I think it didn't work, you know. And I tell my sponsor that. Yeah, he was still drinking. He goes, ah, it was successful. You're still sober. And I get off work the next day, man, and the phone rings at my sister's house, and it's Donnie. And Donnie goes, hey, man, where's that meeting at tonight? I couldn't believe it. He was drinking the night before. So I tell him where the meeting's at. I go, hey, man, do we need to come pick you up? And he goes, no, I got a car. And I go, man, he's doing better than I am. You know what I mean? So I run down to the clubhouse so I can beat the newcomer who's got a car down there, you know. 
And Donnie comes in the clubhouse band and I do what I've been taught in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what I mean? I welcome him cordially. I get him a half a cup of coffee. I sit down with him. I start talking to Donnie. And Donnie said, you know, the stuff you said about sponsorship makes sense to me. Would you be willing to sponsor me? And I said, you know what? I'll get right back to you. And I ran across the clubhouse and I found my sponsor and I go, hey man, that guy from the 12-step call? He goes, yeah. I go, he's here tonight. He goes, you're kidding me. That's great. I go, yeah, man. He asked me to sponsor him. Oh, that's beautiful. What'd you say? Well, I told him I'd get right back to him. He goes, so let me get this straight. He's drinking last night? I go, yeah. And somehow he found his way to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous? Uh Uh-huh. And he took whatever strength he had left and asked you for help? Yeah. And you said you'd get back to him? (laughs) Yeah. And he said, go say yes, you selfish bastard. (laughs) And so I said to my sponsor, I go, man, I've only got six months. I'm living at my sister's house. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to kill him. And he goes, ah, you got to kill a couple before you get the hang of it. (laughs) So I start sponsoring Donnie, man. I don't know what I'm doing. But I found out I did know what I was doing. I just was, I would just channel my sponsor, you know. I'd be mean to him like my sponsor was mean to me. He seemed to like it. I don't know. It was working. He stayed sober. And we're going to meetings together. And I notice at the book studies, whenever it's Donnie's turn to read, right, Donnie doesn't read it. Donnie always passes. He passes the book to the next guy. And I see that and I go, great, man. i got to bring the hammer of Thor down on Donnie because, you know, we don't pass in Alcoholics Anonymous. We participate in our own sobriety. So after the meeting, I pull Donnie aside and I go, hey, man, when's your turn to read? Read. You participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't pass. And Donnie gets all sheepish and looks at his feet. And he goes, hey, man, uh, I don't read so good. In fact, I don't really read at all. You know, if you did that in polite society, you'd be so embarrassed. Oh, my God, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. Please accept my apology. But we're in AA, man. That stuff doesn't shake us up. Everybody's got something wrong with them, and everybody's got something to offer. And right out of my mouth without thinking, I said, Donnie, that's no big deal. I know how to read. And so Donnie and I would go to two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous a night. Then he would drive me home because he had the car. <laughs> and we'd sit under the streetlight in front of my sister's house, and we'd read the big book back and forth. And I'd help Donnie with words, and I'd tell him what they meant, and I would tell him how to pronounce the words. And like any good newcomer, Donnie would argue with me about pronunciations. I don't think it's said that way. I'm, and I would say spiritual things as a sponsor. I would say things like, Donnie, you know reading dummy. I know what I'm talking about. And we would just help each other. And you know, and if you heard Donnie read in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous today, you wouldn't think he went to Yale University, but you'd never know that he came here with a, with a learning disability. You know, Donnie learned to read going to Alcoholics Anonymous and reading the big book with his sponsor. I mean, whatever you got here that you're embarrassed about, don't be. We'll put it to use in Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember, man, I felt so bad. I owed the IRS $80,000 when I got here. And, uh, man, I just thought I'd never pay that off. And I complained to my sponsor about it. I was telling him about my big deals. I go, man, but I owe the IRS eighty grand. How am I ever going to make that right? And he said, you know what, that's a lot of money. But, you know, people have owed more than that and they've made it right now, Alcoholics Anonymous. And besides, you don't have to worry about that right now. But my sponsor took that bit of information and he put it into service immediately in Alcoholics Anonymous. Seemingly for years, if any newcomer had the audacity of complaining about his little $1,000 debt to the IRS, my sponsor would go, can you hold that thought a second? Hey, Don, come over here. And I'd walk over and go, Don... Hey, Don, tell Jimmy how much you owe the IRS. I owe the IRS $80,000. And 
and Jimmy would say, Jesus. And Just want to be a service. You know. I remember when I, saw, I was two years sober when I started paying back the IRS. I made a lot of amends. I cleaned up my court wreckage. I'd shown up in courtrooms. I had done community service in the Salvation Army. I did so much community service in the Salvation Army. When I was done, they threw me a party. You know what I mean? And, uh, I remember when I started paying back the IRS, I was making like nine bucks an hour with taxes taken out. <laughs> and I entered into a payment agreement to send them a hundred bucks a month. I remember writing the first check for a hundred bucks and thinking to myself, oh good, 79900 to go. <laughs> and I called my sponsor up and I go, man, I hate doing this. When's, it, when's this going to be okay? And he goes, I don't know, Don, someday. <laughs> the pat answer of every sponsor, I don't know, someday. And, uh, but, but I'll tell you what, in We Agnostics, in the chapter We Agnostics, it said, God is everything or else he's nothing. What was our choice to be? And I just, I'm just going to share my experience with you. The minute I started paying back the money I owed in the amends process, I started getting better jobs. I started making more money. Now, I didn't have any more money because it was all going to amends because my sponsor taught me. He said, oh, don't worry about it, kid. They don't want your money. I said, they don't. They go, no, they want their money. <laughs> so I'm broke all the time. I mean, I'm broke all the time, but I'm paying them back, you know. And I, I remember I got into the sales game, and I started making some real money, and Eileen and I had met, and we'd fallen in love, and we're getting ready to get married, and, you know, we're saving for a house, and we're saving for the marriage, and we're paying back, she's paying back student loans, and I'm paying back the IRS, and we're on this really tight budget, and we're broke, we're eating top ramen, and living in a one-bedroom apartment on the west side of L.A. with four cats on top of each other, and we're sober, and we're happy, you know. <laughs> And one month, man, I had this killer month at work. I mean, I did, best month I had ever had, you know. And I look at the budget, and like the money for the weddings there, the money for the houses there, the amends are out there, and, I, and there's this little surplus left. And it wasn't a lot of money to me, where I've been broke for like four years in sobriety. There was like a fortune. It was like three thousand dollars. It was like a fortune to me. And my ego goes, "We're rich, you know. What are we going to buy first? Golf clubs, big screen TV. What are we going to?" I'm so excited. I tell my wife about this surplus. And she doesn't miss a beat. She goes, well, you should probably send it to the IRS. And I just scream at my wife, not a minute. You can't let me be happy for a minute, can you? <laughs> I'm furious and I call my sponsor up to tell on my wife. I go, can you believe her, man? She's telling me what I can do with my money to earn. And blah, blah, blah. And my sponsor goes, well, I'm not going to tell you you have to send it to the IRS. But I'm going to tell you, you probably should. Ah, and he's an idiot, so i got to hang up on him. And I don't send the money to the IRS. And I don't spend it either, you know what I mean? I just uh, leave it in my checking account, where it mocks me, you know? Because <laughs> I know the right thing to do, I just don't want to do it, you know? And I hang on for about three weeks, you know? And finally, I can't take the spiritual pain anymore. I Screw it, I write the check. Internal Revenue Service, $3,000. And I put it in the mailbox. I remember dropping it in the mailbox, and the minute it left my fingers, I wanted to pull it back out, you know, but it was gone. And, and I waited, you know, I waited for the spiritual gift you get when you do the right thing. You know. <laughs> A week goes by, no gift, you know what I mean? Two weeks go by, now I'm really pissed off I sent him the extra money. And I, 
I call my sponsor up. I go, man, I'm, I'm resentful that I sent them that money. When am I going to feel better about this? I don't know, Don. Someday. Ah, doesn't know what to say. So you fast forward a couple of years, and Eileen and I are buying our first house. Two alcoholic losers are buying a house. We just lay in bed at night and laugh and go, they gave us a loan. <laughs> oh, they're so stupid. <laughs> And so we're getting close to the finish line, man. We're about to close on this house. And Eileen goes, you should call the IRS, man. We don't want to get tripped up at the finish line. I go, you're right. And by this time, I got my own agent. You know what I mean? I've been making payments for so long and writing letters and doing stuff. So I call up Bill, the IRS agent. I go, hey, Bill, it's Don. Don, how are you? I'm good, Bill. How are the kids? Oh, they're great, Don. Growing like weeds. Thanks for asking. What can I do for you, Don? I said, well, Bill, I'm just calling to check my balance. He goes, okie dokie, Don, hang on. And he gets back on the phone a few minutes later. He goes, well, Don, it's the funniest thing. You've actually overpaid <laughs> by $400. Would you like us to send you a check? <laughs> Let me tell you, if you've sent the IRF every spare nickel you've had for years and years and years, your answer sounds a little bit like this. You bet your ass. <laughs> I call up my sponsor. I go, remember when you told me I'd feel better about my IRS today? One day, he goes, yeah. I go, today's the day. <laughs> and I stayed the course in Alcoholics Anonymous. Marital problems, money problems, health problems, business problems, friendship problems. You know, we stayed the course in Alcoholics Anonymous. Eileen and I, Alcoholics Anonymous has been the center point of our life. We go to meetings, we work with others, we sponsor people's. We've always stayed in the middle of the room in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's enabled us to survive ourselves. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work because of the alcoholic. It works in spite of the alcoholic. That's my experience. You know, I had a best friend in Alcoholics Anonymous, best friend in the world. His name was Greg. Everybody should have a best friend in AA. I was, 30 day, or I was brand new when Greg had 30 days. And we met in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and became fast friends. Greg was the coolest guy I knew. You know what I mean? He was smart. He had an engineering degree. He's just the chicks dug him. He was a funny guy, good looking. And he was a good AA member. You know what I mean? He's the kind of guy, he'd be a year sober and share something in a meeting. Old timers be coming up to him going, that was amazing, kid. You know, and I just, Greg is my best friend. And by the time I was two years sober and Greg was two years sober, we were both having kind of the same experience in AA, you know. Getting a little burned out, you know, the colors kind of dripping out of the pictures and clubhouse sobriety and getting a little bored, you know, when I'm working with people, I'm sponsoring people, and I'm going to meetings, and I'm secretary in meetings, and I'm doing all this stuff, and, and Greg starts pulling back a little bit, starts cutting back on his meetings a little bit, and complaining about AA, and, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy in it, and a lot of the old timers don't walk like they talk, and I can't listen to all that psychobabble, and I agree with the man, I agree with everything he's saying, but I'm not cutting back on meetings. I'm going to AA every night, because I'm figuring why I figure out what's going on, I better stay close to the program. And I had a chance to go to another home group, you know, and I went there and I looked at what they were doing. And they were like really active, you know what I mean? They were like zealots and structured and shoulder to shoulder and doing this thing and sponsoring people and doing step work and being a service. And I fell in love with this other group. And I changed home groups and I went to this other group. And I went back to my buddy Greg and I told him about these AAs I had found. And they're about an hour away from where we live and I'm driving an hour to meetings and an hour home and I don't even mind the drive because it's great AA. And I'm telling Greg about it. And Greg's heard of this group, the Pacific group. Greg looks at me right in the eye and he goes, Man, I didn't get sober to have strong sponsorship and have some guy tell me how to live my life. 
And I said, man, you had a plan when you got sober? Good for you. <laughs> but Greg stays sober, you know, and I go to the Pacific Group. And now I'm three years sober. And I'm super active, you know what I mean? And I've met Eileen and I've fallen in love and I'm paying back money. And I'm doing it by the numbers. And Alcoholics Anonymous, Greg, by this time, three years sober, he meets a girl in AA. They fall in love. I'm the best man at a wedding. They get married. By the time I'm four years sober, Greg don't even go to AA anymore. And I'm so busy in AA, I mean, six, seven nights a week sponsoring people, speaking, doing anything I'm asked in AA. And Greg's not going to AA. And Greg's life is taking off like a rocket. You know what I mean? He's killing it at work. He's making all this money. He builds a brand new custom home out in the Antelope Valley. He's got new, two new cars in the driveway. He's doing great. He don't even go to AA. Me, I'm doing AA till 11 o'clock at night. Got to get up in the morning, go to work, compete with guys that don't have to go to AA. And I start losing my gratitude. And I start looking at Greg. Greg don't go to AA. Greg don't do nothing. Look at Greg. He's making all this money. Got the nice house. Got the nice wife. Got the nice cars. And what's Don got? Don's got a pocket full of debt. And he goes to AA every night. Yeah? And I start thinking, maybe Greg's got the right idea. Maybe that's what you do in AA. You come in here and you get what you need and you get out. You know what I mean? Don't you know, do this forever. And I think maybe I'm the chump. Yeah, you know, that's it. I'm the AA chump. And I make it to five years sober and six years sober. And Greg's six years sober, man. He's doing great. By this time, I'm married to Eileen and Greg was at the wedding. And there's this cockiness and arrogance about him. He's looking at all my AA friends going, yeah, I used to go to AA. And he's so happy, you know, and Kathy's with him and they're doing great. She's dripping jewelry and... He's just killing it out there, and I'm so envious and jealous. And then I got the call. And it was from my old grand sponsor. And he goes, listen, Greg's been drinking. He finally reached out for help. And we went 12-step, and we got him over at the house, and he's asking for you. So Eileen jumped in the car, and we drove an hour and a half to where I used to live. And we walked into a small house, and they had him in the back in a room. And it was dimly lit. And I could see Greg in the corner in a chair, his head down, rocking back and forth. And I knew it was Greg, but he looked different. He had a different look about him. He looked smaller than I remember. And he's saying something over and over again, coming out of his mouth. I can't quite pick it up, but he's saying something. And I get closer to him, and I start picking it up, and he's saying, Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? What the hell is he talking about? And I grab my... Old grand sponsor, I go, what's he talking about? Is it time yet? He goes, oh, man, when we scooped him up, uh, first thing he did, he started to throw a seizure. You know, he's like this close to DTs, and we're trying to, can't get him into medical detox till 6 in the morning. And we're afraid he's going to go into seizure. So every 15 minutes, we're giving him half a thimble of vodka to keep him this side of a seizure. Is it time yet? Is it time yet? And I'm watching the coolest guy I'd ever met in Alcoholics Anonymous, the guy I wanted to be like, my best friend in AA, begging for a half a thimble of vodka in the grips of active alcoholism. And I sat down with him and I said, what happened, buddy? And he said, you know, Kathy and I were doing great. We were standing on the porch one day and uh, Kathy turned to me and said, you know, Greg, we're not the same people that came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And Greg said, no, we're not. And she said, Greg, what do you think about taking a drink? And Greg said, you know, Kathy, I bet we could handle it. And she goes, you know, I think so too, Greg. But you know what? If it gets out of hand, promise me we'll go back to AA. And he said, oh, Kathy. Okay, Kathy, I promise. And they went and they bought a bottle of champagne and they poured two glasses of champagne. And they took the rest of the bottle and before they drank it, they poured it out just in case. And Greg said they drank the one glass of champagne each and they waited. And Greg said nothing happened. 
And they started talking to each other. You feel like having another drink? No, I don't feel like having another drink. I don't feel like having another drink. And they laughed and they laughed and they laughed at the old timers in AA, the fear mongers they called them. They said, I don't feel like having another drink, phenomenon of a craving. They've got to be out of their mind. Everything was fine. The experiment went well. Greg came home from work two weeks later. Kathy's working in the garden. She turns around the garden. She's got a can of Budweiser in her hand. And Greg says, what's with the beer? She goes, it's hot. He goes, yeah, it is hot. You got another one? Yeah, I do. Greg said another month after that, they're drinking around the clock and they can't stop. So they go back to AA. And they get sponsors. And they get a home group. But they couldn't catch lightning in a bottle again. He said, buddy, when you kick six years to the curb, it's hard to get sober on a bad day on day 17. And he said that Kathy at one point decided that alcoholism wasn't her problem and it was uh, psychiatry, so she went back on psychotropic drugs and then she drank on top of it. She had a psychotic break one night and she was trying to kill Greg with a butcher knife. And so Greg had to lock himself in the bathroom while his beautiful wife in their beautiful house with the two new cars in the driveway tried to stab through the door and kill her husband in a psychotic break. And Greg didn't know what to do, so he called the police. And when you call the police in Los Angeles and you go, my wife's trying to kill me with a butcher knife, they said SWAT. And they came in and they kicked the door down. And Greg came out and saw his wife hogtied in the living room of their beautiful house and their beautiful neighbor with their two beautiful cars in the driveway. And they watched him drag through their house. They watched alcoholism drag his wife through the house and into the paddy wagon to go to Civil Brand Institute to wait arraignment on attempted murder charges. And my best friend in Alcoholics Anonymous is sitting there begging for a half a thimble of vodka, explaining his story to me. And the next day we got him in the medical detox, and he checked himself out 12 hours later. And a week later he went back to medical detox, and he checked himself out 18 hours later. And Greg disappeared, never to be seen again in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I travel all over the country in America, and I speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. And every time I'm in a room that I don't know anybody in, the first thing I do is I look for my best friend in AA. I look for Greg. And I hope I find him in a meeting of Alcoholics and Anonymous one day. But he taught me a very important lesson about what happens to guys like me when I forget to dance with the partner that brought me. I'm going to tell you a quick story and sit down. I think it kind of sums up a little bit about what's happened to me and how I feel about AA. Twelve years ago, my beautiful wife Eileen and I wanted to get out of Los Angeles. Eileen had enough of the city and the grind, and she wanted to live someplace beautiful. We had planned to retire to the Pacific Northwest in Bellingham, Washington. It's 20 miles from the Canadian border, and it's gorgeous. 200-foot trees and rivers and streams and lakes and mountains. It's just gorgeous. And uh, Eileen decided she wanted to move there before we retired. And every argument I had was about money, property, and prestige. And Eileen said, why do I have to wait till I retire to live someplace beautiful? And I didn't have an argument for that, so we moved. <laughs> and it was culture shock, man, because we're city kids, you know what I mean? We're concrete, steel, and glass. And suddenly I find myself in the woods, you know what I mean? Eight miles out of town, I mean, it's dark at night, you know what I mean? It's darkity-dark, dark at night, you know <laughs> I remember the first time I had to go out at night and go to the car and I forgot to take a flashlight and I didn't have the porch light on. I got halfway to the car and a little voice in my head said, Cougar. And I just like... <laughs> I ran back in the house and slammed the door behind me and just, you know... Eileen's like, what's with you? And I'm going, dark, darkity dark, dark, oh God, you know... And we both love wildlife, you know. When you live in Los Angeles, the only wildlife you see is like squirrels, you know what I mean? And, and suddenly, man, we got raccoon everywhere, and we got deer, deer all over, beautiful deer, you know. And it's summertime, and the, 
The mama deers are coming around with their spotted fawns. It's like, oh, we're losing our mind. Look at the baby deer. We're taking pictures, you know. If you need 10,000 pictures of baby deer, I got them. I mean, I swear. <laughs> and this one mama deer, man, showed up with this little boy deer. And he was just our favorite because he was so cute and rambunctious and curious, you know. He had this big scar across his nose, you know. So he must have got into it with another buck or ran into a fence or something. So we're city kids, man. We named the deer. You know, that's Mama Deer and Scratch. Mama Deer and Scratch, you know. And uh, We're just having a ball there, you know. And then rutting season in the fall comes. And the deer start losing their uh, summer coats and start putting on their winter coats. And all the deer do that, but not Scratch. Scratch is looking kind of rough, you know what I mean? His fur is getting kind of patchy and he's getting bald spots here and there. And I say to Eileen, I go, man, Scratch is looking kind of ugly. She goes, yeah, he is. And my wife's like that girl, man. So she gets on the internet and does all the research. And she reports back to me, it's an actual affliction. And they get it as yearlings where we live. And it's called deer hair loss syndrome. And if they lose enough fur, the winter will come. And they'll get hypothermic because they won't be able to eat enough to keep their furnace going. And they'll get cold and they'll die. And she explains this to me. And I go, Scratch is going to die? She goes, yeah. And I go, oh, not on our watch. (laughs) And we lost our mind. I mean, we started breaking every wildlife management law in the state of Washington, you know. We start doing supplemental feeding. I'm loading 150 pounds of cob and molasses in my Toyota Avalon and driving it back to the house. The guy at the counter is like, how many heads you got? I don't know how many head would this feed. Like two? I guess I got two. You know, so I'm lying to people and... And when you're trying to feed a sick deer, you can't just feed the sick deer in the wild, right? So we got deer coming from everywhere. We got feeding stations everywhere. We got 15, 20 deer in our backyard. And, you know, Eileen and I are trying to, like, you know, control these deer. Let the the sick one eat. You're selfish. You're self-centered. Get away. And And now it's late fall, man, and Scratch isn't looking good, and we're feeding the crap out of him. And I would go to work, and I'd be obsessed with this baby deer. And I'd, I'd call my wife, and I'd go, you see Scratch today? She goes, yeah. I go, how's he look? She goes, not good. And I'd shake my fist at God and go, not this one, God. You're not getting this one. You know, I just... <laughs> and now it's winter, and it starts to snow, man. And Scratch has lost all his fur except from the nap of his neck. To his rump, man, he's got about a four-inch swatch, four inches in here. So he's just, we've just been so overfed. He just sits in our backyard, this fat newcomer, mohawk, sick dying. <laughs> Rounded out like a beer cake deer. He just, he, just, he just poops and eats, you know. Eileen's in the snow building lean-tos, you know, and spreading hay around so he has dry places. And a dummy standing in the middle of a snowstorm with a perfectly good structure. She's yelling at him, get under the structure, newcomer. Take direction, you know. Just... <laughs> and we're obsessed. And he makes it to the spring and he doesn't die. And for the next three or four summers, or falls in the rutting season, when the big bucks come down from the mountains, Scratch would show up in our backyard. And we knew it was him because of the scar. This magnificent buck. This giant rack. And he would just walk up to my wife. And Eileen would feed him apples by hand. And I would watch that. And I would think to myself, what was it about that damn deer that made me lose my mind? And one day it hit me. I'm that damn deer. <laughs> Thank you.
I'm that sick, unlovable newcomer standing in the corner of the Simi Valley Alano Club. I'm the guy that if anybody had a glancy familiarity with alcoholism would have taken one look at and said, that guy, that guy right there, he's going to die. And two card-carrying members of Alcoholics Anonymous named Lou and Mark looked at me and said, not on our watch. And they did what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous and they carried the message to this alcoholic when I suffered. And i got to tell you something, I know this as much as I'm standing here today. Bill and Bob are gone and they've left us a great legacy, great literature, great history. But they can't do the work for us. And it's our watch now. And the other thing I know as much as I'm sitting here and standing here tonight is out there on the streets tonight, right here in Reykjavik, Iceland, they are dying from untreated alcoholism. And bet your bottom dollar, they are coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't even know it yet. They're just finishing up their story. They're running out of time, but they're running out of hope. And they're going to come to Alcoholics Anonymous like we did, knowing it's never going to work in a million years, but not knowing what else to do. And they're going to arrive at Alcoholics Anonymous, and we need to ask ourselves, when they arrive here, where will we be? And how will we be? Are we going to be in the room, watching the door, watching the room for the new man or woman that comes in, ready to give them that spiritual first aid that was given to us? Are we going to be with our buddies in the corner cutting up about the latest sports game or talking politics or talking about what good movie we saw? You know, all that crap that I need to leave at the door when I walk across the threshold of Alcoholics Anonymous and remember that I have a primary purpose. And Alcoholics Anonymous and the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous are where the 12-step work is done in modern AA. We don't go out and not take people off bar stools anymore. We don't go into people's homes anymore the way they did back in the 1940s. Now they're delivered to us. We've got it so easy, they bring the newcomers to us in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they show up, and the problem is maybe they're cleaned up a little bit. Or maybe they've learned a little bit of their language. And we forget, if we don't know them, they're new. And we need to go and extend ourselves. And remember that when I walk across the threshold of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's my watch. And all that stuff I want to talk to my friends about, and I want to talk about the show I'm watching on TV, and I want to talk about my business deal, i got to leave that crap in the parking lot. I can pick that up on my way home. But when I'm in AA, it's my watch. And the thing I want to impart upon you, they are coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. They are coming looking for us. I hope we stay sober forever. Thank you for listening.